listening in Lloyd Gosling. This podcast is brought to you by Lloyd Gosling, Rochelle, and Townsend in Austin, Texas. Lloyd Gosling is a 30-plus attorney firm in Austin, Texas, specializing in natural resources, energy, litigation, and employment law. My name is Brandi McCarns, and I am the firm's marketing coordinator. Our purpose with this podcast is to talk with some of our practice area experts about timely topics and trends in a more informal setting in a way that we can be a little fun and informative to listeners. Today, I'm introducing Sarah Thornton and Lauren Thomas. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Brandy. Well, Sarah, so today we're talking about PFAS. Do you want to try to say it or should I? I'll give it a shot. It does take me back to my college years and taking chemistry too, but uh, here it goes. PFOS stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And if you can say that three times fast without messing it up, I'm very (laughs) impressed. (laughs) PFOS are actually a group of over 5,000 man-made chemicals, and they've been around probably since the 1940s. And we're first using consumer products like nonstick cookware, such as Teflon products. The two most studied PFOS are PFOA and PFOS, so P-F-O-S, which stand for perfluorooctanic acid and perfluorooctane sulfonic acid. So it's quite a mouthful. <laughs> it really is quite a mouthful. And PFOS can be found in a lot of different places, right? It's really amazing, actually. It is. PFOS has been found in food packaging items, such as like at fast food restaurants, pesticides and paints, and also other daily household products like waxes, adhesives, and even stain repellent fabrics. Manufacturers add PFOS to the products because they repel water and grease, which helps with durability. But PFOS often strays from its original purpose. And as those products break down or otherwise enter the waste stream, So for our conversation today, we'll actually be focusing on how PFOS impacts drinking water and wastewater systems. But it's always important to remember that these chemicals affect other mediums as well. So now that you've covered where PFOS are, we should talk about the risks that are associated with these chemicals. PFOS are often called forever chemicals because they don't break down easily and they're extremely persistent in the environment. PFOS bioaccumulate in tissue, and this means that the concentration of the contamination of the PFOS increases as the chemicals make their way up a food chain, and humans are at the top of the food chain, so that's not looking too great for us. Science suggests that this bioaccumulation can actually have health consequences, and in fact, studies have linked PFOS to a variety of issues in humans such as endocrine problems, immune system dysfunctions, negative reproductive consequences like low birth weight, thyroid disruption, and cancer, and this is just to name a few. Another health issue that is particularly relevant this year is that PFOS exposure may reduce antibody response to vaccines, and more generally, it may reduce resistance to infectious diseases. And EPA and other states have actually been tracking this for quite some time. Back in 2016, EPA actually set what is called a health advisory level for PFOA and PFOS. And this level applies to drinking water, 70 parts per trillion. However, these advisory levels aren't really enforceable. 
Also in 2016, EPA did some research and found that 66 public water systems had PFAS concentrations above the advisory level. And since then, PFAS regulation has really picked up steam. In 2019, EPA actually announced something called the PFAS Action Plan, and this targets forever chemicals through a variety of environmental laws. There have also been a couple of more recent actions, including a memo from November 2020 that deals with PFAS and wastewater. But I think first, Sarah, we should probably talk about the 2019 Action Plan since it sets the framework for all of these actions that are coming down the pipeline. I agree, Lauren. So in the short term, the PFOS Action Plan calls for EPA to develop better PFOS testing and treatment methods, and also directs EPA to implement mechanisms for data collection, data sharing, and risk communication. Basically, a general call for EPA to up its game on what it knows about the chemicals and how to deal with them. And then in the long term, the plan directs the agency to regulate PFOS under the Safe Drinking Water Act, under the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, another mouthful shortened, it is CERCLA, and then the Toxic Substances Control Act, which deals with the front-end manufacturing regulations. But today, we're really going to focus on EPA's plan related to the Safe Drinking Water Act, which is to move forward with the maximum contaminant levels, or MCLs, process for PFOA and PFOS, and potentially regulate a broader class of PFOS as well. So EPA, as you noted, Lauren, had a busy year in 2020 for PFOS Safe Drinking Water Actions, it announced its preliminary determination to regulate PFOS and PFOA in February 2020. It published its preliminary regulatory determination that March, and it accepted comments on that action until June 2020. And then on March 3rd of this year, 2021, EPA made a final determination to regulate PFOS and PFOA under the Safe Drinking Water Act. So that final determination means that EPA now needs to propose national primary drinking water regulations for PFOA and PFOS by March 3rd, 2023, and then take action on final regulations within 18 months of the proposals. This regulation and the maximum contaminant levels will be legally enforceable. So that's a big heads up to the water utilities out there. This is the time for utilities to be eyes open to this movement and really be prepared to start tracking federal and state rulemaking activities when the time comes. I agree. And Sarah, I think it's also really important to remind everyone that's listening that the enforceable limits that you just discussed are for PFOS and PFOA, the types of chemicals that are under this greater PFOS umbrella. So people may be wondering, you know, what is going on with other types of PFOS? And the answer to that question is that EPA has been careful in its Safe Drinking Water Act actions to leave the door open for regulating other types of PFOS under that bigger umbrella. In the action that um, EPA published this March, for example, the agency went out of its way to say that even though it doesn't have any statutory obligation to make new determinations until 2026, it is still committed to making regulatory determinations in advance of the next Safe Drinking Water Act deadline for additional PFAS. So expect to see more regulations in the works for other specific PFAS or maybe even a broader class of PFAS just beyond PFOS and PFOA. 
There's also plenty of activity going on at the state level. Nearly half of the states, excluding Texas, have set their own enforceable limits on certain PFAS in drinking water. This includes New Jersey, Vermont, and New Hampshire. For example, these three states have adopted enforceable standards that are below EPA's health advisory levels. And other states are also taking a different approach. Um, For instance, like California requires public water systems to monitor for PFAS and also requires that the systems notify their customers when they detect chemical concentrations over certain levels. Right. So there is clearly a distinction between what those other states are doing and what we have in Texas, since we really haven't seen a movement on the Texas side of things in terms of setting limits or requiring any monitoring. But there has been a steady increase in testing across the state, particularly for those communities that are near military side. And so we really don't think that the state of Texas is going to implement any type of enforceable limits anytime soon until we see some type of federal action. And there will be an interim period after there's federal action before Texas actually works to incorporate those federal requirements into state law and state regulations and programs. So now is the time to better understand PFOS if you have it in your water supplies or any sites that you own or operate. If you don't know what you have on site and haven't done any testing, you probably want to do some due diligence on and take a look at that. And so there is an option to utilize a statute in the state of Texas that we have, it's called the Audit Privilege Act to investigate those sites through TCEQ. And just to ensure that that you can protect that information that you, to a certain extent, that could reflect any type of contamination by PFOS. Since we're currently recording this podcast during the Texas legislative session, I want to note that there is a bill that does propose a ban to the sale and distribution of PFOS containing firefighting foam in the state of Texas. And that bill is House Bill 4506. And that's just in case any listeners want to check out that particular legislation yet to be seen as to whether it's actually going to pass. That legislation also requires that manufacturers of firefighting gear include certain warnings. But other than that, no other new legislation on the PFOS front. Lauren, before we wrap up today, we should probably also talk about wastewater and PFOS. Yes. One important update that I did want to cover today is EPA's interim strategy on handling PFOS in NPDES permits. And this was published in late November of 2020. And just for those who aren't familiar, the environmental law world sure loves acronyms. NPDES means the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System. So, so, so many acronyms. Thanks for hanging with us. But the NPDES a program is one of the main arms of the Clean Water Act that is used to regulate discharges into waters of the United States. And first, I want to note that this guidance technically only applies to federally mandated NPDES programs, and there's actually only a few of these. These are in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Mexico, and the District of Columbia, as well as in U.S. territories. However, state NPDES programs, so like in Texas, we have the TPDES program, the Texas Pollutant Discharge Elimination System program, these state programs can and they probably will look towards this federal interim guidance when developing their own approaches to managing PFOS in these discharge permits. 
So with that disclaimer behind us, let's get into the main takeaways that we have found from this interim guidance. First, it recommends that PFOS monitoring and best management practices or BMPs, again, we sure love our acronyms. It recommends that PFOS monitoring and best management practices for point source wastewater discharges where PFOS are expected to be present. And so this guidance doesn't clarify what expected to be present means or what best management practices might look like. So this does indicate some flexibility for those writing the NPDES permits, but it is important to pay attention to this language. Second thing that we can take away from the interim guidance is that the guidance recommends the same monitoring and BMP requirements for both municipal separate stormwater systems, we also call these MS4s, wherever PFOS are expected to be present, and in industrial stormwater discharges where PFOS are expected to be present. So the big takeaway on this guidance is that if you have a TPDES permit for point source wastewater discharges or MS4 discharges or industrial stormwater discharges, be on the lookout for monitoring and BMP requirements. They may be headed your way. We don't know yet. It depends what the state decides to do, if they want to refer back to this guidance or not. But just be aware is kind of where we're at right now. Let's see, Sarah, is there anything else that you think we need to cover today or want to talk about? Yeah, thanks, Lauren. So this is a rapidly developing area of laws everyone probably knows and understands, particularly in light of the health effects that can result from exposure to PFOS. So if there's any entity that potentially deals with PFOS contamination, particularly water and wastewater utilities, but also landfill operators and any other entities, they really should stay on top of regulatory updates and how they may affect operations and obligations of those entities. If your entity will be affected by any PFOS rules under the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, CERCLA, or the other federal statutes that we discussed today, you really need to be sure to participate in the notice and comment rulemaking process and have your voice heard. And additionally, tracking any federal legislation legislation that may come out on PFOS because there's always the possibility that the federal government wants to speed up the regulation of this particular emerging contaminant because of the health effect issues associated with it. Yeah, that's a good point, Sarah. I will add that I think it was April 13th, the House introduced the PFOS Action Act of 2021, which is speaking to exactly what you just said. There may be some faster regulation coming down the pike. At this point, it's just introduced in the House, so we'll see what happens. All right. Well, thank you both for joining today and sharing a little bit more about PFOS. It was a pleasure having you on today, and I look forward to next time. Thank you. If you would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit lglawfirm.com. You can also find us at Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views, nor are they endorsed by Lloyd Gosling Law Firm. None of this content should be considered legal advice, as one should always consult a lawyer. This podcast is not intended for commercial purposes and is made available at no cost. Music for the podcast is from album Jazz U and is titled By the Coast 2004-2007 by Antony Brzezikov. License under the attribution non-commercial share-alike license is available on Free Music Archive. To learn more, visit by clicking the link in today's summary.